unfortunately, the end has come. It's the end for me with Mark in this brilliant series. The book, again, I've said it to many people who have been reading us, reading along with us, is The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. And it comes together beautifully in this final chapter. And I thought to tee us up for your thoughts on creating an artificial consciousness rather than an artificial intelligence, I thought it was important to quote the following aspect from the book. You say, the hard problem asks why and how you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, in short, your experience of existence could possibly spring from the physiological processes that occur in brain cells. These cells are not fundamentally different from those that constitute other bodily organs. So how do they bring you into being? Nice way to start. Over to you, our guest, Mark Soames. Thanks so much, Aidan. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. So um, you you want us to start with uh, this so-called hard problem of consciousness. That's the the, the term that was coined by the Australian uh, philosopher David Chalmers. Um, but it doesn't start with him. Uh, he, he coined the phrase, uh, and I think it's a very uh, felicitous turn of phrase, you know, the hard problem of consciousness. Um, but, but let me just go back a step uh, and start with the quotation uh, that you just read, which actually... Um, paraphrases Francis Crick, uh, the discoverer uh, of the uh, double helix, and um, or the co-discoverer of it. Um, and the way that the problem is posed there, I think, um, is probably part of the trouble. Um, it is that the idea is that the neurons and the, and the neurotransmitters uh, that um, flow between them uh, that these produce consciousness uh, in the way that, uh, say, the liver produces bile. Um, it's an organ sort of excreting uh, consciousness. And that is truly a hard problem. If you, if you try and get your head around that, um, how on earth uh, can something physiological uh, produce something conscious, something psychological? How can something material produce this immaterial sense of my existence. How does my body produce my mind? Uh, so that's the that's the sort of standard way in which we formulate that that problem. But it's not the only way to look on it. Um, I think another way to look on it is not so much that the body produces consciousness as that um, there are two ways of looking um, at a human being or any other sentient being. Um, you can either look at it from the outside, in which case you see a body, uh, or you can look at it from the inside, from the perspective of being that body, and then you experience the being of that body. They are two observational perspectives on the same thing. So, you know, for to, just to bring this down to brass tacks, when I wake up in the morning with my eyes closed, I experience my existence. Thank God, I am Mark Solms. I'm alive. You know. Then I open my eyes and I stagger over to the bathroom and I look at the mirror and I see this body there and I think, oh well, that, that too is Mark Solms. Uh, he too is alive. Uh, that's his body and his mind. You know, the mind is what 
uh, I experience before I open up my eyes. Uh, and my body is what I experience when I look at myself in the mirror. And there clearly, these are not two different things. Uh, these are both me, uh, but they're me observed from two different perspectives. So the being of me, uh, the, the, the subjective uh, perspective upon me, uh, and the body of me, you know, the objective perspective upon me, are two perspectives upon one and the same thing. Um, a good analogy for it is... Uh, lightning and thunder. You know, lightning we see with our eyes and thunder we hear with our ears. Um, so you look and you see this flash of lightning and then you listen and you hear kabababumba, you know, this clap of thunder. Um, and it, it, you don't ask yourself, gosh, how did that flash of lightning cause that clap of thunder? Uh, it, it's the wrong question. Uh, the clap of thunder and the flash of lightning are two different observational uh, modalities upon one and the same thing. So what is the underlying thing? Uh, the underlying thing is a, is a, um, a, a flow of electrons um, through the atmosphere uh, due to a potential difference um, from the higher to the lower altitude. And um, that is a theory called electricity. You know, there's a there's an underlying abstraction um, about the laws of electricity, uh, which explain uh, what causes these uh, the light waves um, and what causes these sound waves. It's one and the same underlying event. Um, so we have. An, an underlying abstraction called electricity, just as we have an underlying abstraction called Mark Solms. You can observe him in two different ways, uh, but he's one and the same thing. So that's, that's just to convey what I mean by the difference between two observational perspectives as opposed to cause and effect. Um, I, I prefer to think of the relationship between consciousness and the brain as two different perspectives upon one and the same thing, the being of the brain as opposed to the looking at the brain from the outside, um, rather than asking myself, how does the, how do those cells produce this experience? They are just, you know, two different, so that you can have a memory, um, that's an experience, or you can look at the neurons during, using a method called optogenetics, you can actually see the firing of the neurons that those firing of the neurons are what you see with your eyes um, and the having of the memory is what you experience uh, 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 if you are those neurons. Um, obviously, not just a little network of them, but a, a, great, a great many of them uh, in, in, uh, uh, if, if, you know, in some sort of neuronal aggregate. By the way, the neurons that you see firing with optogenetics you could also listen to them firing uh, with uh, if you have the right kind of apparatus. You hear spike trains, da -da 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 -da. you know. So what you see, what you hear, what you feel—these are all just different perspectives on the same thing. But it doesn't get us away from you know the nub of the matter. The nub of the matter is still profoundly interesting, which is well. Then what is that underlying thing? Um, if you can perceive this thing from these different observational perspectives, depending on what kind of uh, apparatus you use, that's all well and good. So you're saying these are all sort of the, the, the 
phenomenal data, but what is generating all of that data? What is the underlying thing that, that we have all these different perspectives upon? That's really what uh, the science uh, of the mind in its essence, uh, this, this science of the mind that both psychologists and neuro neuroscientists are studying, they're trying to get to understanding that underlying thing. So we study memory systems and language systems and systems for executive control and systems for perception. And then you see all these diagrams, you know, that's what you end up getting in the, in this, our scientific papers. We're all studying the same thing called memory or perception or whatever. Um, and we use physiological data or psychological data in order to get to this underlying, the understanding of the laws, the functional mechanism uh, that, that generates all these phenomena. Depending on what instrument you use, you will see different phenomena, but we want to understand the underlying mechanism. That's really what matters. So the underlying mechanism is what this book is about. Uh, we've, we've been on a journey together through the various chapters. Um, and in that journey, you know, we've, we, we, we've, we've slowly gotten to what the mechanism is. And I tried to formulate that in terms of what's called the free energy principle, a very important part. Uh, of uh, the free energy principle uh, and other such principles is that they are neither physiological principles nor psychological principles. These are underlying uh, formalisms. These are the underlying mechanisms which explain how both the physiology and the experience come about. So th th that's the chapter one, as it were, of what I wanted to say in response to your uh, teeing me up to talk about the hard problem. Uh, the hard problem is what is that mechanism? Uh, not how do the two different sets of observing those me that mechanism relate to each other? And I think that if we if we think of the hard problem is how does this phenomenon, this way of observing it, cause this way of observing it? We're asking the wrong question. It's rather what is the thing uh, that these that both these ways of observing uh, are directed at? So that underlying mechanism um, is what I've tried to describe, um, and it's no accident that I end up describing it in the language of mathematics because it's an abstract language. It's a language uh, that 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 describes the underlying mechanisms uh, in a in a language that's neutral. It's neither a physiological language nor a psychological language. It's the language of well, Galileo beautifully said. The book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. You know, so, so that's, that, that's why this book ends up getting so mathematical in places. It's because we need an abstract language to describe abstract mechanisms to get to the heart of the matter. I thought I'd just mention some of the studies I learned from you from your book. These were amazing studies released, and these are years ago now. So this is 2012 to 2016, which is like the ice age in this research, how fast it's moving. When researchers showed that it is, it is possible to create an artificial interface between the brain and the spinal cord to enable paralyzed animals to move their affected limbs by replacing spinal neurotransmission with radio signals. And then you went on to talk about other amazing studies, a landmark study in 2012 by Brian Paisley and colleagues when they showed that it was possible to use a computer model to reconstruct the words that the brain had heard, which is amazing. And then you go on to tell us about dream recording 
and that as this step towards thought recording. And those same researchers, I looked it up, Mark, I went down the rabbit hole, which you've sent me down many, many times, looking at this research, looking at videos of these teams. And they've gone on to do those studies of paralyzed animals to people now, where the robot is capable of touch, because they actually, they, they've affected the brain with electrical signals, which is just amazing. And I, and I, I, maybe you had a thought on that, because that really brings to life what you're saying is that if you can bring this into mathematics, you can program it. And that teases up nicely. Well, if you can program it, then can you go on to create an artificial consciousness? Yeah, so what you've introduced, that's a, a very uh, felicitous uh, a, a set of uh, a th thoughts to introduce here, because what you've introduced um, is, uh, which I think is your intention, to show that if you can perform that mechanism, it doesn't matter what the outward appearance of the thing is. Uh, the technical term or phrase that we use uh, in, in, in these uh, scientific uh, contexts is that the mechanism is substrate independent. In other words, as long as the mechanism is there, um, it doesn't matter what it looks like or what it sounds like. Uh, or, uh, you know, the so so the the, the pyramidal neurons that uh, join uh, the cortex uh, to the spinal cord, uh, the part of the spinal cord that controls movement uh, in our muscles. Um, the, we use signals going through those neurons from our cortex to our um, peripheral nerves to make our movements. Um, now, those signals uh, are just information. It's a pattern of information uh, which is fired. The neurons fire them. I mentioned spike trains a moment ago, brr, 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 like that. What those are are ones and zeros. Yes and no. The, fire, the neuron fires or it doesn't fire. And then there's a great, as I said, conglomerate of neurons. So there's a whole pattern of ones and zeros. That's really all that the neurons are doing. Um, that's the mechanism. So you can look with your eyes and you'll see neurotransmitters and you'll see ion channels opening and you'll see the, you know, the, the action potential traveling along the axon and all of that is physiology. Uh, but if the neuron is interrupted, as happened in those unfortunate um, monkeys in the experiment that you refer to, uh, Paisley's experiment, and and as happens in by accident uh, in in uh, in you know I've had many a patient with a severed spinal cord, um, they can no longer move, although they can have the intention to move in their brains in their cortex because the axons are are disconnected, then they can no longer do it. So what Paisley did was put a, 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 an array, a, a recording array on the cortex of the monkey, recording what the intention was in terms of the firings of those neurons, then by radio transmitted it to a receiver um, in the spinal cord, which relayed that same pattern uh, to the, the neurons beyond where the, where the damage is. And uh, then the monkeys were able to move. In fact, those monkeys were able to walk very adequately over, you know, uneven surfaces. And, uh, you know, and as, as, as you said, Aidan, now we're beginning to apply this clinically uh, in various ways for human beings with, uh, with spinal lesions. Um, and uh, uh, that's the kind of practical consequence of the thing that I was trying to say to you, which is that um, it's not the outward a form that the thing takes that matters. 
It is the actual mechanism. That's what does the work. Uh, that's what causes the outcomes that we observe. And um, in those experiments, I'm, I'm focusing on the Paisley one because each one of those three experiments you mentioned uh, introduces slightly different issues. But in all of them, uh, it, it is it is information that is being recorded uh, and transmitted um, exactly the same information as um, is being generated uh, uh, and, 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 and expressed as cortical activity uh, or expressed as uh, nerve impulses down the spinal cord. Exactly that same information can be sent by radio or can be recorded by a computer and then produce the sound uh, that it had heard um, even though uh, there's, you know, the the, the 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 thought process, you know, that was that, that was it wasn't originally heard; it was just recorded from cortex, and then from that recording, it can it can actually say what the words were, you know, that were being thought and so on. Um, the computer stands between uh, the 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 cortex recorded from and the sound that's produced. The, so that, that's what we mean by substrate independent. The, as long as the computer is performing the same uh, uh, information processing, it does the same job. So uh, that's um, the next point. You know, uh, to, so I've made point one is actually what we're talking about is a mechanism. Point two is uh, the mechanism. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Uh, it's what it does that matters. Um, and now that leads me to point three. And this is really... A, a charm, David Chalmers's version of the hard problem. David Chalmers says, well, that's all well and good, but the mechanism doesn't have to feel like something. Uh, you, 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 you can say, yes, you can do a mechanism that causes movements and you can, you can, um, uh, um, uh, you know, re, uh, uh, you can engineer the mechanism that causes sounds uh, and you can, engineer the mechanism that causes any externally observable thing, but none of those mechanisms has subjective experience. That is the hard problem is why is there subjective experience attached to these mechanisms? And he says uh, it, it, it's, it's, it exists in a different realm. Uh, the, the experience does. And he uses, and this is not only Chalmers, many uh, people of that mindset um, use this example. It's It's called the it's called the knowledge argument, um, and it was coined by another philosopher named Frank Jackson. And, and I'm going to give his argument in a simplified form. Um, in, in my simplified form, it works like this. Imagine a visual neuroscientist named Mary, um, and Mary knows everything there is to know about how, the, the, how vision works. She knows everything uh, about the physics and physiology of vision, the mechanism. She understands it perfectly, but Mary is blind. Um, and then uh, one day, uh, by some uh, great uh, good fortune, the gift of sight is bestowed upon Mary. And uh, suddenly, for the first time in her life, she has a, a visual experience. And Jackson's argument is that now... Mary learns something utterly new about vision. Even though she knew everything about its mechanism, she did not know what it is like to see. And so the argument goes, therefore, everything about the mechanism explains um, the external observables, uh, 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 but it doesn't explain the internal observables. 
that doesn't even explain why there should be internal observables. Um, it, it didn't predict for a moment that there would be internal observables. And crucially, it seems that the mechanism does exactly the same thing without the internal observables. Uh, so what are the internal observables for? Um, uh, and uh, what do they do? And um, and uh, where do they come from? Because clearly they don't come from the mechanism. This is, this is Chalmers' argument. And therefore, the phenomenal experience of subjective being, uh, according to that way of thinking, exists outside of ordinary natural scientific causal mechanisms. And that's a spooky kind of way of thinking. You know, that goes back to, uh, you know, this is body and soul, you know, and uh, the soul is an immaterial thing. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's eternal and uh, the laws of physics don't apply to it and etc. I mean, you know, Chalmers is a very bright guy, but he does end up saying we're going to have to change the laws of physics or extend the laws of physics uh, if, if, if it's going to be able to accommodate consciousness, because clearly, as we understand it now, uh, physic, the physical world is a closed system uh, that doesn't have any place for experience and we don't need experience. And when he says we don't need experience, let me just be clear about what's meant by that. Uh, when I said uh, that, that Mary understood everything about vision, uh, except she didn't know what it's like to see it because uh, her understanding of the mechanism uh, didn't make any reference to that. There's good reason why it didn't make any reference to that. It's because I'll tell you two things about it. The first is we have many uh, artificial uh, apparatuses that can see in the sense that, uh, for example, your your phone, uh, which has a little camera in it, you know, it can see in the sense that it can receive uh, visual information. Uh, and not only that, it can recognize, for example, whether it's looking at a face or not. Um, you know, you, you know what your phone does. It sort of adjusts for the face. Um, and then it can record that data in memory. Um, so clearly everything that the brain is doing visually in terms of, you know, <laughs> receiving light waves, transducing them into something else, uh, in our case, into nerve impulses, in the case of the camera, you know, into little impulses in the chips of the, the that make the, silic the, the silicon infrastructure of the of the camera. Um, and it recognizes, you know, faces versus landscapes and so on, and then it commits them to memory. So all of that sort of visual stuff can go on uh, without any experience. Presumably your camera isn't uh, just like the blind Mary, you know, your camera, uh, it, it, it's got a, 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 all these mechanisms for vision, uh, but it, it, it doesn't have any experience. So what is the experience for? You don't need the experience. Um, and it doesn't seem to be part and parcel of the mechanism. So this is Chalmers' big challenge. He's saying, your science, Mark Solms, it's mechanistic, uh, physicalist neuroscience. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's very good at getting to what the underlying mechanism is, but that mechanism doesn't uh, have any place for experience. So this is, and the same applies, uh, by the way, to the visual cortex. And this is why I said we're starting in the wrong place. It's exactly because the visual cortex can process information just as Mary thought it could. She's right. 
uh, the visual cortex can process visual information in a highly sophisticated way uh, and commit visual information to memory without any consciousness being attached. There's tons of experimental evidence that you can see things without knowing you're seeing them. Uh, and, the, and, and what you've seen affects your future behavior uh, without you knowing that your behavior is now being influenced by what you previously saw uh, because you didn't know that you saw it. So uh, the, in this way, our brains behave just like the camera does. It's, it does all this visual information processing and memorizing on the basis of uh, the, 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 what, what it experiences, uh, but it doesn't actually experience in the conscious sense of the word. It doesn't experience anything at all. The cortex does the same thing. So this is why I have said, number one, cortex is the wrong place to look. Uh, if you're wanting to solve the hard problem of consciousness, don't look to the cortex because the cortex is not intrinsically conscious. The cortex functions unconsciously unless it is aroused or activated by the upper brain stem and by the reticular activating system in particular, which is called the reticular activating system for a good reason. There's an absolutely no controversy about this, uh, that the cortex is not intrinsically conscious. The, co the cortex is rendered conscious by, uh, by brainstem arousal. So the cortex is the wrong place to look. Uh, vision is the wrong thing to study because vision is not an intrinsically conscious process, as Mary knows. Um, uh, it, it's, it, it can work unconsciously. Uh, but the upper brain stem, uh, which, uh, which activates and arouses and renders conscious what goes on in the cortex, um, it does not produce vision, it produces feeling. Uh, this is the single most important claim, uh, or not claim so much as just pointing out the obvious uh, in my book, that the upper brain stem, which is the, the reticular activating system, which is specialized for consciousness, not for, not for information processing, it's specialized for consciousness, um, uh, it, 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 its intrinsic essential function is to render the information processing conscious. This part of the brain doesn't generate vision, it generates feeling. Uh, and uh, my way of thinking is that the, you feel your way into your visual, your otherwise unconscious visual information processing, and that's how it becomes conscious. It's the feeling that's conscious, and then you feel your vision. So I've, I've said um, that the hard problem arises for two reasons. The one is that we think, you know, that the, that, that, that the brain produces consciousness like the liver produces bile. I've said, no, it's two different ways of looking at the same underlying mechanism. And then Chalmers says, yeah, but the mechanism doesn't bring about consciousness. There isn't any mechanism that brings about consciousness. Look at the example of vision. And I'm saying, well, it's the wrong example, mate. Uh, if you look at the example of feeling, you, and here's, here's the crux of what I'm trying to say. Just, uh, just let me try and pause for a moment to place emphasis on it. Um, that it's true that the mechanism of vision uh, does not predict that it would feel like something to see. But the mechanism of feeling does predict that it would feel like something to feel. And, and I'm not just... It's not just a play on words. I'm not just saying, well, it's an oxymoron to speak of a feeling you can't feel. Uh, remember, I'm saying empirically, the part of the brain that generates consciousness is the part of the brain that generates feeling. So if we understand the mechanism whereby that part, the mechanism instantiated by that part of the brain, then we will have understood 
the mechanism whereby feeling. If if Mary was an affective neuroscientist uh, and she ha- never had experienced any affects, actually, by the way, if that were the case, she'd be in a coma. But let's leave that aside. Uh, if if Mary were an affective neuroscientist and she'd never experienced affect, but she knew the mechanism. But affect is just the technical term for feeling. If she knew the mechanism whereby feeling or affect is generated, then she would know that it feels like something because that's the whole plumbing point of feelings. You know, the whole, the mechanism is there in order to generate feeling. And feeling has certain fundamental properties. Number one, it's registered by the system. It's about the system. We are a system in this sense, this mechanistic way of talking. You know, the, 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 the system is registering its own states. Uh, so uh, that's point one. Uh, it is therefore intrinsically subjective. Secondly, we are self-organizing systems. That is to say, we are systems which distinguish between ourselves and everything else. So this is me. That's not me. This is the system. That's not the system. So in two senses of the word, these systems are intrinsically subjective. They have selfhood. In other words, they have a point of view the point of view of the system upon everything else. And it's monitoring what's going on inside of itself. That's what the mechanism of affect is all about. And uh, then uh, thirdly, uh, it gives a damn uh, about what it's monitoring because what it's monitoring is its own viability. You know, if I move out of homeostasis, I stop existing. Uh, if I re- move back into homeostasis, I continue to exist. So what it's measuring, the mechanism of affect, what is being monitored by the system in terms of its own, uh, its own uh, states um, is its own existential viability. So th- these, just, just, you know, these are the properties. I'm, I'm, I haven't finished my listing, but these are the properties of what a feeling is. A feeling is something registered by a self. In other words, a thing that has a, its own point of view. It's registering it subjectively. It matters uh, to that uh, to that something, um, and it's registered in an intrinsically valenced way. And that's another technical term, but it just refers to values in the sense that there's an intrinsic goodness and badness. If 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 the measure is moving out of homeostasis, that just is bad. Uh, it, it mechanistically is bad because it means you're going to stop existing as a system. Uh, and it just is good if it's moving back toward homeostasis. So this is another fundamental property of feeling, which is that it has valence. So fe- feelings have badness and goodness. Only feelings have intrinsic ba- badness and goodness. And then lastly, we have to have categories of feeling because we have categories of need. You know, we have hunger, thirst, sleepiness, the need to urinate, um, fear, rage, um, you know, lust, etc. These are different things. So you need to know in what category am I out of kilter? You know, if, if, if you just out of kilter um, in terms of hunger in some abstract way and then you go and drink, it's not going to help. You know, if you if you're lacking oxygen and you go and eat a hamburger, it's not going to help. You know, so you need to know. I'm lacking oxygen. That feels like suffocation alarm. Or I'm thirsty. That feels like thirst. They're qualitatively different. In mechanistic terms, that means that they are categorical variables. You can't reduce them all to one common denominator. You can't say, I've got eight out of 10 of sleepiness and four out of 10 of thirst. 
that makes a total of 12 out of 20 of need. So I'll just sleep uh, and never drink. You know, you'll die if you do that. So you have to drink and you have to sleep and you have to eat and you have to defecate uh, and etc. You've got to do them all. So they have to be categorically distinct in, in, in statistics, uh, in, 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 in the language of numbers. Um, that just means that those variables are qualitatively different from each other, not quantitatively different. Eight out of 10 of sleepiness and eight out of 10 of thirst, it's the same number, but they don't mean the same thing. So affects work like that. So there you've got the mechanism. The mechanism of feeling uh, is that it is a system which has a point of view registering its own state in terms of its own viability, uh, how well or badly it's intrinsically valence uh, am I doing in relation to a, a, a particular quality of my existence? That just is a feeling. So if you, if you, uh, uh, David Chalmers, who said that no mechanistic description will ever account for why things feel like they do, I'm saying, yeah, that's true about vision and a great many other things, but it's not true about the mechanism of feeling. So, um, that brings us to, um, the other, Profound meaning of those um, those three um, bits of experimental uh, or, or, or technological advance that you were referring to earlier. I said that what they show is that the mechanism is substrate independent. In other words, as long as the cortex is connected to the spinal cord via the correct information, in other words, the right. The, 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 the mechanism, this, this pattern of information in the cortex uh, has to be transmitted to the spinal cord, uh, to the motor effectors in the spinal cord. It doesn't matter what, what substrate is used. In other words, if you use the actual uh, long axons going down the spinal cord to transmit that, to be the, to be the vehicle of that information, of that pattern of information, of that mechanistic causal process, uh, or if you use radio waves, uh, they, they end up doing the same thing. So that's what Paisley showed. You know, you don't need a pyramidal neuron to do it. A radio wave can do exactly the same thing. And he demonstrated it in the simplest possible way. The monkeys walked, you know, so there's the proof of the pudding. Now that leads us to the, 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 the final chapter of my book, uh, which is titled Making a Mind. So now take a deep breath. And remember, so far, everything I've said to you is sensible. Just a little piece that might be a nice connection, because I, I've been following you. I've, I've read the book, as you know. So I'm going to throw into the melting pot lots of terms and as I understood them. So homeostasis, we're all, we all go towards homeostasis. I view homeostasis like a seesaw. So you're constantly trying to get to leveling the seesaw. When you do that, you minimize free energy, which is the the the, the gap between where you want to be and where you are, right? <laughs> um, us, we are self-organizing beings, and we are homeostats. So even within our being, we have these areas, homeostats, and they are all surrounded, including us, by a Markov blanket, which is that point of interaction with the environment in which influences us and, and guides us. And 
with that all, we constantly want to minimize uncertainty, which is that eradication of the free energy. But the way we understand that is by feeling. And feeling does not come from the prefrontal cortex. It comes from the source, which is deep down in the RAS, the reticular activating system. That's the source. That's the wellspring of consciousness. And it's easy to program those things that go on in the prefrontal cortex, because they are the information flow, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And sometimes it's a convenience to think that anything that doesn't have a prefrontal cortex advanced prefrontal cortex does not feel for example, how we butcher animals, mammals, and as a result, we think, oh, well, they don't feel anything, they're not conscious. Okay, so I'm gonna park all that. <laughs> and and feel free to grab whatever pieces or correct me if I'm wrong in any of that. Because it brings me to this interface, this Markov blanket <laughs> between those two chapters, you said, as we previously discussed, it is conceivable that effective zombies might exist, who behave as if they're conscious, but are not conscious. How then can we ever know whether they really are conscious? The traditional answer is with a behaviorist test of intelligence known as the Turing test, we know that. But it's not actually a test of consciousness. It's a test of intelligence. So I hope Mark, that's a nice little interface for you to grab onto whichever parts you like to build and propose the final argument making a mind. Yes, thank you very much. Ed. And well, let me hook up first of all, on the last thing that you said, uh, this thing about philosophical zombies, by the way, David Chalmers is very keen on all of that. Uh, and this is, this is the very point that he makes. He's saying, you know, you can have, uh, you can have this mechanistic robot uh, that does all these things that looks as if it's got a mind, but actually there's nobody at home. So, you know, he's saying that this, this shows you, you know, the mechanism is not what we're looking for. We're looking for something mysterious, something which is outside of science, something which you can't explain mechanistically. Um, and, uh, so the, uh, to, to so the, like what I was saying about the, uh, the, the sort of robotic, as it were, the artificial connection between cortex and, and, uh, and musculature uh, in Paisley's experiments and the artificial connections between cortex and, and, and sound uh, in, in the other experiment you referred to, the, the third one where the, 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 it was possible to see from the recordings of visual cortex, you know, what, the, what was being dreamt. Um, you know, this, this is amazing stuff. But he's saying all of it is external, all of it is objective, all of it is uh, uh, um, uh, uh, if, if physically observable, none of it is subjective. That was what Chalmers was saying. And I was saying, well, it's because you're looking at the wrong mechanism. The mechanism for feeling is not the same as, as the mechanism for movement or, or for, or for uh, speaking uh, or for um, uh, face recognition or whatever. I'm saying all of those mechanisms can carry on unconsciously. Um, so what to hook up with another thing that you've just said about the prefrontal cortex, um, the prefrontal cortex can do prefrontal cortical things unconsciously. We know that it can. Uh, it's, it's the brain stem, the reticular activating system feels its way into the information processing going on in the cortex. And then it, it, it and, and I'll tell you in a minute why it does that. Uh, but before before I do that, I can't resist the opportunity also 
to tell you that in to remind you, Aiden, in my book, I describe a patient of mine, Mr. W, who has no prefrontal cortex. And I ask him, does it feel like anything to be you? You know, and uh, he thinks it's a ridiculous question um, because, of course, he's there. There's, there's the, the, the sentient being of the person doesn't reside anywhere in the cortex, including in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, another little thing to tell you about Mr. W uh, is that, as I quote in my in my book, he makes a puerile joke uh, in in his conversation with me, and and this is one of the things he's want to do. He's always making silly jokes. Uh, and, and this is what happens with patients with prefrontal cortical damage quite generally. They're known for, 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 for what the Germans call it, Witzelsucht. They, they love to make little jokes. Um, but more than that, they are full of affect. You know, that's why they make jokes all the time. They, they are, in fact, disinhibited as far as affects are concerned. They are too emotionally expressive. They say things that you would, maybe you and I would think, but we wouldn't say it. You know, um, Mr. W and people like him, uh, they, 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 there's an outpouring uh, of affect. So if the cortex was where the affect was being generated, then how come when you take the cortex away, you get more of it uh, instead of less of it? So um, I said I will tell you in a moment why um, why we feel our way into our cortical information processing at all. But, but the important thing for now is just to hold on to the thought that, the, that, that what we're talking about is the feeling, uh, not the perceiving or the thinking. The intelligence doesn't have to be conscious. The feeling does have to be conscious. And I'm saying that if you understand the mechanism of feeling, uh, then uh, it, is, it can be uh, uh, engineered uh, artificially, uh, it's 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 it, it, it's it's substrate independent. Uh, so so it, in other words, why would you want to do that? By the way, we're transitioning uh, just so that because uh, Aiden's always been going so carefully through chapters. I was until now I've been talking about chapter eleven, which is about the hard problem of consciousness, and now I'm I hope I'm remembering the chapters correctly. And now I'm moving on to the final chapter 12, which is entitled Making a Mind. Now, why on earth would you want to do that? Um, there was a, a brilliant physicist. Uh, his name was Richard Feynman. And um, when he died, uh, they found written on his blackboard. So it was sort of like his last words, not that he spoke them, but he wrote them on his blackboard. He said, if I can't create it, I don't understand it. Um, and, and I think that's a, a, a very sobering and true statement. If you are going to claim, as I just have, you know, that the mechanism of feeling, um, we understand it. It's an extended form of homeostasis. It's not something spooky. Uh, it's not something outside of natural science. Uh, if you're looking for, if you look in the right place, you will find a, 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 a natural scientific explanation for everything in nature. Uh, and if we, and if you haven't found it yet, well, keep on trying. You know, eventually you will. Uh, the, the, these are. I, I don't mean to be overly reductionist. I mean, if you're looking at simple question like how does feeling come about? You know, it's feeling is something that happens in nature. It's part of nature. Feelings exist. They exist all over the place. Um, you know, in and they exist in living creatures. And they must be doing something and there must be some way of explaining how they work. And so that's what this book 
uh, tries to do. But then uh, the, 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 the following what Feynman is saying is that if you're going to claim now you've identified the mechanism whereby feelings are created, uh, then you should be able to engineer one. You should be able to reverse the process saying, okay, I've worked out from feelings and brain mechanisms that generate feelings. And, you know, I've come to an understanding that this is the mechanism. Well, on the principle of substrate independence, remember, I've used that phrase a few times now. If it's the mechanism that counts, then you should be able to make an artificial version of that, which will generate artificial feelings. And this goes again to Chalmers's story about 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 philosophical zombies. Um, if if you've got the right mechanism in that zombie, it won't be a zombie because that mechanism produces feelings. So a, a, a robot that has this mechanism will be a robot that feels. I don't mean a robot that feels like you and me. You and I are not robots, uh, but. Uh, if we were robots uh, that had the right kind of mechanism, we would have artificial feelings. We would have artificial feelings. In other words, we would have robot-type feelings um, about how we're doing as robots. Uh, so, so if built into your robot uh, is something like a need to maintain a certain electricity supply, that's what will matter to the robot. Um, if the need of the robot is to remain within a certain temperature range, uh, then that's what will matter to the robot. Um, if, if, what, if the robot needs to not suffer too much um, uh, damage to its component parts by banging into things, uh, because if it bangs into enough things enough times and suffers enough damage, it will, it will fall apart, then that's what will matter to the robot. So just as there are things that matter to you and me, uh, they matter because our very survival depends upon them. That's why it matters to me when I'm short of oxygen and it matters to me when I'm short of water and short of sleep and short of, you know, all of the things that we've spoken about so many times uh, in, in our conversations. Um, those are our affects. Our most basic raw feelings are these values about our own existence, upon which our own existence depends, rather, I should say. Uh, if you engineer uh, an artificial um, intelligence, it doesn't have to be very bright. Intelligence and feeling are not the same thing. Uh, intelligence and consciousness are not the same thing. Uh, it, it, but you can engineer uh, an, an apparatus that has these mechanistic dynamics, in other words, it's a self-organizing system with a Markov blanket, and, uh, uh, which has to, everything it does, um, has, to, uh, has to maintain its own survival. And all that you build into that artificial intelligence is the imperative that it must maintain these three homeostatic states. I just mentioned three uh, now, you know, about energy supply, temperature control, and... and um, and, and a, a tissue damage. By monitoring how it's doing and using uh, its monitoring of how it's doing in relation to what's going on in the outside world, both in terms of its actions upon the outside world and the, and the sensory uh, in feedback it gets from the outside world, uh, it, and it changes its model about how, what, how does the world work in terms of what must I do um, it, 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 what I did there didn't work. I, I didn't bring me back into my required temperature range. So I must try something else. 
uh, and then something else does work and then it updates its model. Okay, so that's how the world works. That's how the world works. Each of these things tethered to uh, how well or badly it's doing in relation to its homeostatic needs and it having to prioritize those homeostatic needs. You know, they're not all the time running equally. Uh, one thing's going badly while two other things are going okay. Then its behavior all becomes about where, how do I find energy supplies? You know, once it's charged its battery, um, while it did that, it banged into several things. So now it's like, oh, I've got a little bit of tissue damage here and I'm a little bit overheated um, as a result of all of that activity. So let me just calm down my, cool down my heat first of all. And uh, once I've done that, okay, now I can do the tissue uh, repairs. Uh, okay, once I've done that, actually, I've taken time. My energy supplies have gone down. Let me go and look for energy again. So, you know, this is how the thing works. If it works by those mechanisms that I just described to you, uh, then it will have artificial feelings about those sorts of things. Um, and, and, and that's just, you know, the, that, that is the kind of proof of the pudding. Remember I said to you at the beginning, uh, not at the beginning, at the beginning of this part of our conversation, I said to you, I hope you have cons reached the, the, the conclusion that Mark Solm seems like a reasonably sensible chap, uh, because I know what I'm saying now sounds crazy. Um, I myself, when I first realized, uh, if we truly are claiming that this is the mechanism whereby feelings are generated, then we have to be able to reverse engineer it. And if we can't, then this is not the mechanism whereby feelings are created. That's what led me down this path. And so that's why for the last, actually, I think it's more than three years now, uh, we've been working on exactly such a, such a project. Interestingly, when I started, I think it was more like four years ago, three or four years ago that we started. I'm working with a team of physicists and mathematicians and, and roboticists and computer scientists uh, on this thing. When we started, they were all a little bit wary. You know, it was like, oh, everyone's going to think we're nutters. Interestingly, during those, at least over the last two years, suddenly everyone's, you know, busy speculating about whether ChatGPT is conscious or not. And it's now a pretty mainstream view, not only that uh, uh, artificial consciousness is possible, but but sort of, whoa, you know, be careful, you know, by mistake, we might create an artificial consciousness and maybe we've done it already and, you know, that sort of thing. So it's not quite as crazy sounding as it was when I wrote my book. I really did it with my heart in my throat. I thought, oh, wow, you know, all my credibility is going to go out the window here. But, you know, the, the fact is, you this is this is following your own reasoning through to its own logical conclusion. So, so that's what we're doing. I just want, I keep saying, I'm going to say why you have to feel your way into your cognition. So let me just put it like this, that um, the, the basic function of consciousness is I feel like this, you know, I feel hunger or I feel thirst or in the case of our artificial consciousness, you know, I feel dwindling energy supplies. This is bad, you know, um, that's the first thing. It's the feeling. But then, secondly, it is, I feel like this about that. It's extending what the feeling is about onto your representation, your sensory motor representations, your representations of what you're doing and what's happening in consequence of it. So I feel like this about that is why you have to feel your way into your perceptions and cognitions and, and indeed your actions. 
And then, so we call those policies. And what I'm doing is I'm following a policy. And I, I, I'm not going to go into all the technical jargon of all of this, but it's just basically a sequence of actions is a policy that you predict will lead to a certain outcome. While you're doing that, you have to, you can't wait until it's too late. You're feeling, is this working or is this not working? That's what the feeling is for. So I feel like this about that. And, and basically the, to put all the mathematics into an absolutely simple phrase, it, it basically goes like this. It is good if things are turning out as expected. Good from the point of view of the, of the robot. If things are turning out, if the policy is, is, is panning out. Uh, and it's bad if uncertainty prevails. So if things are not going as expected. So the feeling is about how the policy uh, is the policy succeeding or is it, so it's palpating all the time. It's confidence in its policy uh, in relation to the, the ratio of predictions to prediction errors. You know, is, uh, is what I'm expect, is what I expected happening? Uh, or is it not happening? If it's, if, is it increasingly things are not turning out as expected? You reduce confidence in the policy and change the policy. And this is what our little, our little robot does. And it does it brilliantly. Um, and it's only, only, only program is you got to survive, mate, up to you, you know. And, uh, so. There, in a in a very few words, I know we sh we sh we're short of time, Aiden. In in a very few words, we at least got to what that final uh, chapter is all about. And I can't end without at least saying a, one word about the fact that we are extremely mindful of the ethical uh, implications of doing research like this, and so it's being done in the most careful possible way. And, and once we've reached the point that we think we have got to our criterion, in other words, that our robot is capable of having artificial feelings because of all of the ethical implications of that, at that point, we're going to, as we committed to in my book, we're going to stop the program and we're going to call a symposium of all relevant stakeholders um, and, and we're going to lodge the ownership of the, of the, uh, of the intellectual property uh, not in any individual hands. We're going to lodge it in the hands of this group of people uh, who are going to decide about how should we regulate this? Should we even go any further? If we do, under what, under what conditions? Not only in terms of the danger to us, but also in terms of the ethical obligations you have to a sentient machine. If the machine feels like something, it's, it's a little bit like an animal. You know, you can't just do whatever you like for experimental purposes on it. So I needed to at least get that in. Uh, under the wire, but it's discussed much more thoroughly in the final chapter of the book. You do indeed, and you discuss all this much more thoroughly, as you do with all the topics we've covered across the entire series. It's been an amazing series, and I had so much more, as you know, to ask. I was trying to get more time for Mark, but I was, he's been so, so generous with his time. And Mark, you reminded me there of a, a Einstein quote, and I know you're a fan of Einstein. He said, if at first the idea is not absurd, then there's no hope for it. So I didn't think at all you were being absurd or crazy at the end. And certainly it built up your credibility in all the other chapters. But I, I have to say, if you're going to put your hands of this conscious entity or this conscious robot 
into the hands of anybody. I'm very happy it's you having got to know you through this series. I, I trust you <laughs> and uh, I hope uh, I hope everybody else does as well. For those people who have joined us all the way through, I'm sure you absolutely enjoyed it. And I'm sure many, many people working on AI have actually joined us on this because it is so timely. And I know it wasn't when you started the book. So bravo on that bravery as well of taking that bold step, Mark. All that remains for me to say is I am so grateful. You've given me many, many threshold moments of new ways of thinking about things, many, many great analogies and metaphors as well for organizational change and indeed individual change as well. So from the depths of my heart and from my reticular activating system, <laughs> I want to say thank you very much. Thanks so much, Aidan. Thank you for your interest and for the time that you've put into this. Um, and uh, uh, to uh, our listeners and viewers, uh, thank you also for bearing with us. I'm very mindful of the fact uh, that um, this is a complicated subject, you know. So it's it's for that reason that Aidan ended up giving so much time to it. It's because you can't possibly convey even the headlines um, of what the actual causal mechanism of consciousness is uh, in an hour or two. Um, so thanks for bearing with us. And I'm afraid if you read the book, you'll see it in more detail because it's even more complicated than we've been able to convey um, in, in our conversation. So let me end um, with a quote also from Einstein. Uh, Einstein said that in science, it's important to keep things as simple as possible. And then he added, but no simpler than that. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love it, Mark. Brilliant way to finish. It's been an absolute pleasure, author of this beautiful book. Look at that beautiful cover on it as well. It's it's a detailed read, as you got the hint of that, and it, it does require time. Hence, I couldn't. I usually cover a book every week. There was no way I covered this book. It took me six months to absorb it and absorb the theories and indeed get Mark's time. Author of The Hidden Spring, a journey to the source of consciousness and creator of a conscious robot in the future, I'm sure. Mark Soames, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Aidan.